All right. I want to welcome everybody to the preaching of the Word of God. We're gathered to worship the Lord, and now we get to gather around His Word and hear God speak to us. And we, just like every week, we need the Lord's help. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That's what the Scriptures teach, and we we know that. We want to feel that this morning, so we want to call out for help and ask the Lord uh, to help us to hear His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today as our king, and we gladly bow before you as your people. Lord, we love to sing to you. God, we love to sing truth to you, Lord. And we bow at your feet. God, you are great. You are king. Lord Jesus, you are the word made flesh. And Lord, we want to bow before you and submit to you, God. We want to submit to you, Lord. We ask you to teach us today by your word, instruct our minds. Lord, we ask that you would sanctify your church today through your word. God, you are all that we need. Lord, we pray that you would create light in hearts this morning. We pray that you would create love for Christ in hearts this morning. That you would fan it into flame. That we would see you, Lord Jesus, rightly. Help us, God. Tear off the blinders this morning. Lord, we cry out for help. Speak to us by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And as you turn there and as we begin this morning, I want to invite you to imagine a world without any certainties. A world where the sun didn't rise every day. A world where water didn't always boil or freeze at the same temperature. I want you to imagine a world where car brakes and debit cards and airplanes only work 50% of the time. I want you to imagine a world where surgeons don't show up to surgeries routinely. A world where 911 operators can't be trusted to answer the phone. I want you to imagine a world where all the things that we depend on as being constant were removed. A world without certainties. And I want you to imagine the chaos. I want you to imagine the anxiety of living in a creation with no certainty. And I want to ask you to take that a step further this morning and imagine that same degree of uncertainty if it were present not only in creation but also in redemption. What kind of turmoil would be unleashed upon the human soul If nothing could be trusted, and what would this say about the Savior of sinners? If there were no certainty of salvation, no certainty of the forgiveness of sin, no certainty that God was pleased with you, no certainty that God hears you when you pray, imagine no certainty of eternal life with God. And then imagine that not only on an individual level, but imagine a whole Christian church without any certainty of salvation. Nobody knows they're saved. 
Nobody knows they're right with God. Let me read you these words. On January 13, 1547, the Church of Rome at the Council of Trent formally denied the assurance of salvation was possible for Christians. Listen to these words. They said this, No one can know with certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God. No one can know with certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God. And I want to invite you to imagine what the Christian life would be like with that kind of uncertainty if no one could know that they were saved. In the words of C.S. Lewis, this would be like a world where it was always winter, but never Christmas. No good news. No absolutes, no hope breaking in, no light shining in the land of darkness. And this morning I want to show you just how wrong this is. And I want to show you that a right understanding of Christmas leads to a celebration of absolute certainty. A hundred percent absolute certainty. And what I hope to show you this morning is that the whole purpose of the incarnation was to actually accomplish salvation. Not to make it a mere possibility, not to make it a hope so, but to secure something to make it absolutely certain. And I want to make a connection between two different doctrines in Scripture that you may have never considered how they're related. Or if you have considered how they're related, I want to strengthen that connection this morning between the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the assurance of salvation for every Christian. I want to show you how those go together this morning. If you are a Christian who at times doubts your salvation, I want this doctrine to bring comfort to your soul this morning. That you would rightly understand not only that Jesus is God, but why he came, why he is here, why he came. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to read God's word together beginning in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now our focus will be on verse 21 in that passage that we just read together. And even more sharply, our focus this morning will be on one word in verse 21. And that word is that four-letter word, will. W-I-L-L. He will save his people from their sin. If I had to title this message, I would title it The Certainty of Christmas. I want to magnify that one word, will. I want us to lift up together the power of Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins. You can break up verse 21 by the three verbs in this passage. That'll be our three headings this morning. Number one, she will bear. Number two, you shall call. And number three, he will save. She will bear, you shall call, and he will save. All right, as we jump into this passage, we notice that some very unique things are happening in God's word. Only a few times in scriptures did the angels come and and give this this unique birth announcement of this special uh, child. And not only in this birth announcement is unique and it's coming from angels. This is an announcement of a birth. There's never been another birth like this. That this child would be conceived, not by natural means, but by the Holy Spirit. There had never been a baby brought into the world the way that this that this angel is announcing this birth. The child in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 20. Now, here's what I want you to note there. That the incarnation is of divine origin. Okay, that, that phrase in verse 20, that it's from the Holy Spirit, that tells us that this whole thing is God's idea. This isn't Mary's idea. She didn't say, you know what, you know, when I uh, come of age, I want, I want to conceive a divine son. This is not her idea. She's passive in this process. This is the plan of God. This whole thing is of divine origin. And I think that will help you in a thousand ways to remember this morning that the incarnation was God's idea. It was the coming into fruition of God's plan of redemption. And I say that for this reason, that one of the ways that the Bible builds our faith is that God's word reminds us that God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. He doesn't start anything that he doesn't finish. And in fact, he says it this way in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so I want you to learn to think in in that framework and according to this logic in Scripture. If God started the incarnation, then whatever the reason for this incarnation, you can bank on it. He's going to finish it. God finishes what he starts. The incarnation will never be wasted. Matthew tells us that this virgin conception and this virgin birth is a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. He quotes the words of Isaiah 7, 
14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So this is a holy moment foretold by the mouth of the prophet hundreds of years before it happens. And and one of the questions I want to ask and answer this morning is why? In other words, no doubt, this is a miraculous sign. Nobody in this room has ever witnessed a virgin birth. Nobody in the history of the world has ever seen a virgin birth besides the one announced in this passage. But why? And we see a principle here all throughout the scriptures that God's word explains God's work. In other words, God's word explains the redemptive acts of God. They tell, God's word tells us what his works mean. And so the question that we should ask and answer from this passage is why? I mean, no doubt this is amazing. A divinely conceived child, a son from the Holy Spirit, but why? Why? And the answer to the why comes in the form of a name. The names that are referenced by the angel and by Matthew in this gospel explain the why behind the incarnation. Why is he born in this totally unique way? One of his names is going to tell us why. Why does he have this totally unique mission? One of his names is going to tell us why. In verse 23, we are told that the name of this spirit-wrought son in the womb of Mary will be Emmanuel. And then Matthew interprets it for us. He says, this is God with us. Never happened before, never happened since, that this is God with us. God in the presence of his people. Emmanuel. That name reveals the divine nature of this child. In other words, why a miraculous miraculous sign? Why a divine conception? Because this baby is going to be God. In Isaiah uh, 9-6, the prophet announces the name of Jesus prophetically. That one of his names will be Mighty God. Mighty God. Matthew says, Emmanuel. God with us. I don't want to ever grow stale to this as a Christian. And I know Christian brothers and sisters all across this room. You don't want to grow stale to these truths about your Savior. Oh yeah, this is the the, the incarnation of Jesus. Got that. Fully God, fully man. God in human flesh. Got that. It's not something that we master and move on. It's something that we just stand, stood, stood this morning in church and adored the name of Christ. Why? We sang it to God. Word of the Father. Now in flesh appearing. And the only fitting response is, oh, come let us adore him. I don't want us to get over this claim and this truth about Jesus. God with us. Let's remind ourselves of, of what's going on here. As this is being announced in the womb of the virgin, there's a union that takes place. It's holy, holy, holy. Not like anything that's ever happened before. The divine is united with human nature. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. And that's just a real fancy word to say. Never happened like this before. 
One person, one child, one son, two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. Everybody in this room has one nature. Jesus has two. Fully God, fully man. Jesus is the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. The Christ. And in the womb of Mary, this union is taking place. Listen, a union never to be separated. There will be, never be a time in eternity future where the two natures of Christ are ripped apart from each other. He's the God-man forever. Forever. God, the eternal son, took on a holy human nature. Think about that. Meditate on it this morning. Worship. The infinite took on the finite. This is, this is the move that's being made right here in Holy Scripture, the announcement. The creator took on the creaturely. The God of strength took on weakness. The God of aseity that needs nothing took on dependence. The God of omniscience took on ignorance. The God of omnipresence took on spatial limitations. You say, I hear what you're saying. You're saying Jesus was God, stopped being God, and became man. Wrong answer. It's not what I'm saying at all. Remaining what he was, God, he became what he was not, man. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the God-man. His deity is now veiled by human nature, a weak human nature. This is the wonder of the incarnation. It's the greatest miracle that's ever happened. Every other miracle that Christ performed flows right out of this miracle. Fully God and fully man. In the womb of Mary was the hope of the whole world. The God-man was being conceived and developing in her womb. He is the only mediator between God and man. Why? Because he is God and man. He's the only one who can accomplish this mission, this role, this purpose. There's no one else. There's no one else. He is Emmanuel. God with us. That's the nature of this son. His name explains the miracle of the virgin birth. And this is, this is why we sing. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Next line, fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices, oh the night when Christ was born. And I just encourage you this morning, don't get over that. Make it your aim as a Christian to be gripped by the reality of the incarnation, to be gripped, to be awestruck at the condescension of your God, of the great love of your God, that the Creator came for us. Be gripped by it. This is what Christmas means. The God who made man became a man. 
Next question to ask and answer this morning is why? But why? I get it. I get it. He's, he, he, he's born in a miraculous way. He has a divine nature. But why? Why is he here? Another way to ask this question is why would a holy, holy, holy God come and dwell in a sin-soaked world? Why would he do that? The Bible says that God dwells in inapproachable uh, light. Why in the world would he come to dwell in the world of sin? But here we have the announcement that Emmanuel is in the land of deep darkness. Why? Why? This is not left for us to guess. The other name that the angel announces explains the why behind why he's here. And we see this in verse 21. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, if the name Emmanuel reveals the nature of this son, God, then the name Jesus reveals the mission of this son. Say why? Because the name Jesus is just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which both mean Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. In other words, the very name Jesus means God will save us or God saves. You see that? The names of Christ reveal the why behind the incarnation. Now, no Jew could protest to that truth and even that name. Of course, Yahweh saves. Nobody, nobody who feared God could protest that. But what's being announced in this birth is something totally unique. Is that through this son, God will be with us. Through this son, God will save us. It's a claim to deity. This will be the exclusive instrument of salvation. The way God will save his people is through Jesus. And his very name means that. He's here for salvation. The name of Jesus means that he is a savior. It's one of the first things that should come into your mind when you think about who is Jesus, who is Christ. One of the first things should be he's savior. That's who he is. This happens also in Luke chapter 2. When his birth is announced in Luke chapter 2, the night that he was born, the angels announced a birth, not just of a baby, but they said it this way. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. In other words, you don't understand this birth rightly until you understand it in the framework of salvation. He's a Savior. That's who Jesus is. That's his name. Church, I want you to see that that's his name pulsing through every ounce of Jesus' being is Savior, Savior, Savior. That's why you should call his name Jesus. 
Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. This is who he is. Then the angel goes on to reveal not only is his name to be Savior, Jesus. Verse 21 goes on to show us that his destiny is to actually accomplish salvation. And we see that in that final phrase of verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. In other words, there's nothing left to chance as we move through. She's going to bear a son. Going to call his name Jesus. It's going to be a divine son. His name's going to be salvation. And guess what? He will save. He will accomplish salvation. He will save his people from their sin. Rome says you cannot know with certainty of faith if you have obtained the grace of God. Matthew says there's nothing that you can be more certain about in this entire universe than this. He will save his people from their sins. You can be more certain about that than the sun rising tomorrow. Jesus will not fail. Jesus cannot fail. It's unthinkable that God in the flesh would fail his mission. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone in here in this, this morning is, is tempted to be a Roman Catholic. But if that is you and the shoe fits, hear the word of the Lord. What I am suggesting is that there are a lot of people in this room who are tempted to think exactly like that. And I want to encourage you this morning. Maybe it comes in a, a, a moment of doubt. I just don't know if I'm saved. Or I thought I was saved. And now, you know, looking back, I'm just, I'm just not sure anymore. Or a softer form of lacking assurance would sound something like this. In Colossians 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul, I love this, this, this passage. It, it, it reveals the burden of a leader who is responsible for a group of people. One of the burdens. In Colossians 2 verse 1, Paul says that he's got a great struggle. Great struggle. That means something's eaten at his uh, uh, soul. There's a burden on his soul. He's struggling in his prayers. He's got something sitting on his heart. And when you find out what it is in verse 2, it might surprise you. He has this great burden that the Christians in this church, in Colossae, would reach the riches of full assurance of faith. Man, not what you would expect, right? Got a great burden because the false teachers are coming in. That's happening too in Colossians. That's happening too. But this burden is that the people of God would walk in the riches of the full assurance of faith. That means that you know that you're a Christian, you know that Jesus has saved you, and you're walking in the riches of that. All the riches that flow from knowing that you're a child of God. And I desire that for you. Your pastors desire that for you. Your brothers and sisters in Christ desire that for you. That you would live in the joy of salvation. Not just check, I know I'm saved. 
but that you would live in this world in such a way that there that there's this reality that my name is written in heaven and Jesus says rejoice rejoice and so i want you to understand that the whole purpose of the incarnation is to actually accomplish salvation in other words i want you to think about the son of god becoming incarnate as a rock solid ground for christian assurance and here's why everything flows from this doctrine everything I'll give you just an example. If God became flesh in the person of Jesus, then of course his life was absolutely sinless. Of course it was. Of course Jesus never sinned. He was God in the flesh. Of course he never sinned. Of course we have a sinless Savior. He was God in the flesh. He was even impeccable. Christ was even impeccable. We don't even have time to go into that this morning. Of course he was sinless. If God became flesh in the person of Jesus, then of course his death is enough to cancel all of our sin. It's not the death of a mere prophet. This is the son of God incarnate. I mean, how much value and worth could you attach to a death of the, per- the, the incarnate God? Then, of course, his death is enough to purchase our forgiveness. Of course it is. Not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. All of his people. All over time. Of course it is. He's God in the flesh. You see how it all flows from this. If God became flesh... In the person of Jesus, then of course the Lord Jesus trampled death. He's the Lord of life. Of course he trampled death. Of course he was raised from the dead on the third day. He created the world and everything in it, of course. If God became flesh in the person of Jesus, then of course his present priestly ministry at the right hand of the Father will ensure that none of his people are lost. Of course it will. Of course it will. These are the prayers of the God-man. How effective are the prayers of the God-man, God incarnate? Of course they accomplish their purpose. To bring his people blameless to the throne of his father. If God became flesh in the person of Jesus, then of course his enemies will be judged. Of course they will. Of course those who reject Christ will be judged forever by God. They're rejecting a mere prophet. They're rejecting the Son of God incarnate. God sent His only Son into the world. Of course He will judge those who reject Him. Of course He will. You see how this flows? Out of the doctrine of the incarnation, the sinless life of Jesus, the atoning death of Christ, the triumphant resurrection of Jesus, the whole priesthood of Jesus, the final judgment, eternal salvation. All of it is flowing out of this announcement of this son in your womb is from the Holy Spirit. He's God with us. It's a rock solid ground of assurance. When the son became incarnate, 
Nothing was left to chance. Nothing. He came to fulfill the mission that his father gave him. Listen to these words in John 17, 4. Jesus says to his father in his high priestly prayer. He says, I glorified you on earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So we have this beautiful, you know, inner Trinitarian dialogue in John 17. I mean, wonderful stuff like the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. And one of the things that the son says to his father is I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Of course he did. God gave his son a mission and the son responds back to the father, mission accomplished. Of course it is. He's God. The very nature of, there's nothing you know, about God that can fail at anything. Of course he accomplished his mission. He's God. He secured redemption. That means he actually secured it. It's not like he just opened a door, you know, made this uh, possibility of, hey, that door's open. You walk through it when you want. He actually bought something. He made it certain. He secured it. This is the language of Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all. And to the holy places, by means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption. That's why he's here. And why is this the redemption that Jesus secures eternal? Because he secured it with his blood, the blood of the Son of God, God incarnate. Mission accomplished. Jesus promised that he will lose none that belong to him. In John 6, 39, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that my father, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Of course he will. He's God in the flesh. Of course he'll lose none. He's the Lord Jesus. This is why... Christians sing the incarnation. It's too good just to get it, you know, right in your head. You got to sing it. You got to you got to adore him for who he is. Mild he lay his glory by, born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give the second birth. He was born to save. His name is savior. But then the question comes, yeah, but how do I know this applies to me? How do I know that I'm in that category of his people? He will save his people for their, from their sins. And this is all, every Christian and everyone in this room has got to learn this. Okay, You will never find a rock solid assurance looking at yourself. You will never find it. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. Because the foundation is faulty. And that's true for everyone in this room. You will never find rock solid assurance by musing 
on the secret counsels of God. You'll never find it that way. Did God choose me before the foundation of the world? Nobody ever finds assurance like that. Not one person in the history of the church has ever found assurance by asking that question. That's the wrong question. This is what we have to learn. In order for it to be certain, the ground of our assurance has to be located outside of ourselves, external to us. You cannot build the assurance of salvation on the foundation of your own obedience to God. It's too uncertain. You got good days, bad days. Good days you're certain, bad days you're not sure. Can't build it like that. Has to come outside of you. This is why our Savior didn't appear merely in our hearts. Like, man, he appeared in my heart. This is why our Savior was born once for all outside of us, external to us, and none of us added anything to his work. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a blameless, perfect life. He died an atoning death for our sins. He trampled over death in his resurrection, completely apart from us. We did nothing. We didn't help him in any way. And so the only ground for a certain assurance has to be located, not in myself, but on this infallible foundation of the work of Jesus Christ. This is why salvation must be received by faith alone, apart from works, without any human works attached to it. No Christ plus anything. Jesus, is, Jesus did everything to save his people from their sins. And the result of that trust in Christ alone is what the Bible calls justification by faith. Really, really good news. That when we trust in Jesus, that external work gets credited to us. His perfect life, his perfect obedience to God becomes our record before God. Our sins get placed upon him. His righteousness is given to us. Free gift. No works attached. And it has to be this way. If it's going to be guaranteed. If it's going to be certain. It's certain because it's not about us. It's not about our obedience to God. It's not about what we did or didn't do. It's about him. It's about what he accomplished. It's about the spirit wrought son in Mary's womb. The one who came to us, the pre-existent Son of God from another world who came to us. Lived the life that we should have lived and died the death in our place. It's about Him. What would your Christian life look like if you really lived in the riches of that reality? That I'm saved in Jesus plus nothing else. What joy would flow out of your life if you really sank your teeth into this doctrine of assurance that flows from the incarnation? What would it look like? How would it change your life? We have a guarantee of eternal life through the work of Christ. Romans chapter 4 verse 16 says it this way. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. 
and be guaranteed to all his offspring. You want it guaranteed? You got to have it by grace. You want it guaranteed? You got to have it by faith. There's no other way. Every other way, it can't be certain. It can't be guaranteed. This is the only way it can be sure because this is the only way that salvation comes from outside of us through the work of Christ alone. If it's going to be sure, it has to be by faith in Christ. In closing, I want you to notice that last phrase in verse 21. Their sins. I want to say two things about that phrase. First, I want you to see that this is a simple yet comprehensive statement of your problem. Okay? I say simple because two words. I say comprehensive because everything wrong about you can be located in those two words. All your problems that you have or have ever had or ever will have can be summarized in those two words, their sins. It's a simple, comprehensive statement of our problem. And the incarnation reminds us that Jesus Christ came to lay the axe to the root of the tree of our real problem. He came to deal with their sins. He came to deal with the root of everything else. He's not a superficial savior. He doesn't put band-aids on your life and leaves the real problems unaddressed. He goes to the very root. He's here to deal with their sins. And it's not just that he may do it. Matthew announces the certainty of it. He will save his people from their sins. And we get this glorious vantage point as the church of Jesus that looks back and says he did save his people from their sins. But not only does it describe our problem, that phrase, their sins, also describes the nature of the salvation that Jesus gives. It's salvation from sin. That's why he's here. It's not, you know, uh, to make your uh, uh, Monday through Friday, you know, a little more uh, uh, enjoyable. He's here to deal with the root of your problem, salvation from sin. It's the only kind of salvation that Jesus gives, a salvation from sin. And here's the thing. There are a lot, a lot of people. That phrase is so helpful because it's in the plural and it's possessive. Your sins. Okay. There are a lot of people who want to go to heaven. I don't want to be judged by God. That have no desire to be saved from their sins. None. I'll take all the good stuff, but I'll have my sins and Jesus. And this is a really clarifying phrase. That the only salvation that Jesus came in this world to give is to save you from your sins. can't have your sins in Christ. He saves his people from their sins. Comprehensively. Comprehensively. Immediately, he saves us from the guilt of our sins. Progressively, he saves us from the power of sin. That's justification and sanctification. Eternally, he's going to save us from the very presence of sin. That's glorification. I mean, he will save us from our sins in every way you can possibly imagine. 
We sang that um, earlier. He comes to make his blessings flow. And I love this line. Far as the curse is found. He's rolling it back. All of it. As, as deep as that sin runs. Our Savior came to overthrow it. Have you been saved from your sins? That's a Christmas question. Has Christ left his mark on your life? Has he saved you from your sins? Think about how fitting this is. The purpose of the incarnation was not to leave you the same that you've always been. Think of what that would say about God in the flesh. That God in the flesh was born. He lived the life we should have lived. Died the death that we should have died. Comes to live in the hearts of every Christian. And you're just who you've always been. Think about how unfitting that is. Think about what that would say about the Savior. Of course he didn't come to leave you like you've always been. He came to give you life. Raise you from the dead. Each one of us should face up to the fact that our greatest problem is our sins. Not somebody else's sins, our sins. And our greatest need is to be saved from our sins. Eternal punishment will be for our sins. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. Matthew reminds us that only Jesus can do this. He's the only one. Joshua failed. Moses failed. Didn't give them rest. David failed. Solomon failed. Prophets didn't give Israel rest. He's the only one. There's nobody else who has arisen who can do what Jesus promises to do. But Matthew takes it further. Not only can he do this. Matthew says this is his name. His very name is Savior. He will save his people from their sins. Therefore, you should trust him. You should bow at the feet of the God-man and call him Lord and God. And you should trust him and you should follow him all the days of your life. His name is Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Lord, we call on you today and we ask God that you would cause your word, the word of Christ, to dwell richly within us. Lord, we want to respond rightly. We want to love you, Lord Jesus. We want to trust you. You're a good Savior, Lord. You're a perfect Savior. You're a faithful God. God, help us to trust you. God, we ask that you would deliver us from unbelief. And we ask, Lord, that you would comfort us in our weak faith, Lord. You are a strong Savior. God, we pray that you would help us to worship you rightly and to follow you sincerely, Lord. God, I pray for anyone here today that's unconverted. God, I pray that you would confront them with this reality. That there's nothing common about Jesus Christ. That he is holy, holy, holy and there is none like him. And I pray, Lord, that you would compel them to follow him. Lord, we look to you today. Thank you for your word. 
Give us hearts to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.